So, yeah, so I'm a, a postdoc in cognitive neuroscience with a, a background in psychology. And my talk is going to be about the dilemmas that I face, the challenges that I face when I think about the things we have learned about reproducibility, which we have mainly learned from behavioral research and about how they apply to what I do. So I'm going to discuss that uh, a bit to go through uh, the things we've heard today and, and to see whether that addresses my concerns. Uh, the first thing I, I've been wondering is whether a uh, one-size-fits-all approach is the way to go. Namely, we, we have heard of a number of suggestions today how to do research, how to research reproducibly. But these suggestions, they come from behavioral research, which has uh, maybe slightly different rules than what we do in, in neuroscience. And um, what got me to thinking about it is actually how this plays out, so the reproducibility crisis how it plays out in behavioral psychology. Now, it started, at least at the moment that I tuned in, from some findings in social psychology being flagged up as potentially problematic. And I, I'm not a social psychologist, I don't know much about the field, but looking at it from the outside, I have the feeling that the field really is in crisis, that the people who are in the field are doubting some of their main textbooks results, and they're not sure how much um, credibility to give to the main findings in the field. Um, on the other hand, we have, I feel, the problem of psychology, which uh, concerns have been raised about it as well. Uh, from what I've seen, some findings um, don't hold up to scrutiny, but usually it's a story of somewhat inflated effect sizes, and usually the main findings that we find in textbooks are not wobbling as much, and uh, the field does not feel like it's in a crisis it feels like it's undergoing a process of refinement. What I find interesting about these two fields is that, to my mind, when I look at the methods they apply, at least this part of social psychology which seems to be uh, not holding up to scrutiny, I think the methods are very similar. It's a laboratory approach, an experimental approach applied to uh, quite different research questions, and uh, it seems to work in one case better than in the other. The field that does not get mentioned in these discussions is the field of psychology of individual differences. It seems to be flying under the radar. So this is intelligence research, personality research, and the reason it's falling under the radar is that actually its results tend to replicate. And uh, it's a field that comes up with results that are usually uh, small effect sizes, usually a little bit boring in terms of what is being found, but usually replicate, and I think the reasons for this is that this subfield of psychology has been carving out its own research methods from the very start. And it has a strong focus on large sample sizes, it has a focus on reporting effect sizes, and also it has reproducibility built in in the sense that um, for a finding to be a good finding in psychology of individual differences, it's a finding that has to hold up throughout the lifespan, for example, or across cultures, across countries. Um, so what I'm getting from this is that it seems to me that we have to think about how we fit our research methods to the questions <coughs> we're asking. And in the same vein, I'm going to be asking whether we can fit the suggestions we heard today to my own field of cognitive neuroscience. Uh, there are many general suggestions. Uh, I, I made up this, and we've heard almost all of them today. Um, for example, we have heard the suggestion to increase our sample sizes. So we traditionally research using 
smaller sample sizes that we should. We don't have enough statistical power. Uh, Kate talked about this, Richard talked about this, and I think there's widespread agreement that we should have larger samples. Um, we have heard that it's a good idea to pre-register our hypothesis and research methods, and Chris talked about this at length. Um, so we come up with an idea of what we aim to find or what we think we are going to find. We come up with a detailed analysis plan, and ideally somebody else looking at the description of our methods could then take what we described and do the same study on another sample and uh, get the same thing that we assumed we were getting. Um, hopefully, if, if the hypothesis pans out. Another thing that we've heard about is that it's good to share data, it's good to share code, and uh, Chas Budra has been talking about this. Um, we've heard that it's a good idea if we find an effect, instead of saying we did not find statistical significance, to actually test the data in a model comparison, to have one model that says this model claims the null effect is true, this model says the alternative hypothesis is true, and to see where the evidence for one over the other falls between these two extremes. Um, EJ was talking about that, and something I uh, assumed that I was going to hear about today but, but did not is, is about what to do when you're doing exploratory research. You're, we have heard the sentiment that it, it's good to pre-register your hypothesis, it's good to test what you uh, wanted to test, but then you're free to explore as much as you like, and then to just uh, report this as exploratory research. Um, but I've also come across a suggestion that you, you do, you, you can research as widely as you like, you zero in on the finding that you think is true, then you collect another sample, one more sample, and then test again and see if you're going to find the same thing. Um, now my concerns, now I, I think all of these are great suggestions, I think these are goals to strive for. I just think there's some space between where I am and what I do and these ideals that can be filled with further guidelines. Uh, my main concern when I'm doing research is reproducibility in the, in the, the strict sense that Dorothy was mentioning this morning, which is whether somebody else can replicate my results taking my data. So somebody who knows what they're doing, who gets my raw data, and in neuroscience, when we have raw data, we, we do a lot of pre-processing until we're at the point where we can do a statistical test. So somebody else who knows what they're doing, pre-processing the data, once they come to the point where they're clicking that button for the statistical test, will they get the same outcome that I got? And um, I'm going to take you for a plunge into, into oscillatory data neuroscience for a moment. So this is the response of the auditory cortex to uh, tone played twice in quick succession. And um, the brain, when it's active, and it's always active, um, it, one of the things that it does is that neurons fire together in synchrony at certain rates. So a group of neurons starts firing together, stops, starts again, stops, and this happens cyclically. And these cycles vary in, in length. Um, and the type of cyclical uh, neural behavior that we're seeing tells us something about the cognitive processing that is underlying our effects, and it also tells us something about the types of neurons involved. And here, for example, what you can see is that when this tone is played around 70 times per second, a group of neurons starts firing. There's this red blob here, and before it, there wasn't much happening. So, so this is some sort of response to, uh, to a tone. Um, 
Now, because the brain is, yeah, and one, one thing about this data, we cannot estimate it time point by time point. It's a little bit smeared over time. So this point here is an average over a certain time window, and then we estimate the next point by moving this time window and on and on. And so there's a little bit of smearing across time. And the smearing is smaller and smaller as we go up. So over here, there's not much smearing over time. Over here, there's a lot of smearing over time. OK? One more thing about neural data. We, uh, the brain is always active, and a lot of things are going on. And I'm not necessarily interested in all of that that's going on plus the response to the tone. I'm interested in, in the response to the tone minus everything else that's going on um, when, when there's silence, when nothing is happening. And that's why we do baseline corrections. So when we do baseline, when we take a baseline, we see what the brain is doing in relation to our stimulus of interest. Now, because there's smearing here, I've come across the question of where to place the baseline. Usually, you would place the baseline as close as possible to the tone. But here, there might not be a good idea because there's some activity spilling over. It's looking like something is happening before the moment of tone onset, simply because of the way that we uh, come to get, that we get the sort of <coughs> neural representation. And I didn't know what the correct thing to do here was, so I asked two experts, and they disagreed. They said, one of them said, well, actually, you're interested in what's going on up here. You're not really interested in what's going on down here where the smearing is happening. Just put the baseline as close as possible. Put it to the, zero, to the point where the tone is happening. Uh, and the other expert said, no, 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 you really do not want the smearing. Uh, move your baseline back. And the difference between these two was something like 150 milliseconds. Um, in these 150 milliseconds, people are sitting in silence anyway. There shouldn't be any difference in what's going on. But what I was confronted with was that the answer to my research question depended on where I put the baseline. So I tested both, and I found that I was looking at the effect of two experimental factors. I found that um, in one case of one baseline, one experimental factor, if it was present, it affected the other experimental factor, how it, how it uh, affected the brain. So there was an interaction. And in the other case, I found that there were Kind of, there was no evidence of an interaction. They were kind of independent. And I had a problem here because I did not know. So, so these were different stories about how my experimental factors interact. But um, I, I didn't see which one is true and which one is not true. And I did not want to tell a story about the baseline, which would be an irrelevant element of my data analysis. I wanted to tell a story about my experimental factors. And now I was stuck in this space with deciding what to say. And um, I started thinking about, well, actually, in this data pre-processing period, I'm doing quite a lot of tinkering with, or, or there are quite a lot of moments where I could have done things a little bit differently. So uh, normally, when we record neural data, there are a lot of noisy trials. We throw out a lot of them. Um, but we make a semi-arbitrary decision on how noisy is noisy enough to be removed from the data, we filter the data, we, this temporal smoothing that I talked about can have windows of different lengths. Um, uh, ideally, none of this should affect our conclusions because our research questions are not about any of these elements. Um, but I, I've noticed that they do sometimes affect conclusions. So um, what could I do? I could follow what would have been a guideline from what we heard today which is to decide on all these mini steps in advance. 
I could decide where I put the baseline, I could decide how I filter, what the temporal window is smoothing in and so on and so on, so that somebody else analyzing my data would, at the point where they're doing that click for the statistical test, they would come up with the same result as I was coming up with. But I found that this does not address my concern. My concern is that these elements of data processing that to my mind are not related to the question I'm asking can influence the answer that I'm giving. So I went, for the, I went the other way. I uh, wanted to check everything I can and started tinkering with these parameters and I started looking at what the answer to my research question is in relation to, um, to this tinkering. And uh, in the end, I just, I just decided, I, I made a decision on my own. I didn't know what to do with this. I made the decision to report the effect that showed up regardless of what I did and the effects that were more volatile that depended on these things that they shouldn't depend on. I, uh, I, I didn't report those. And I know that somebody else analyzing my data would find the same effect, even if they would maybe find something else as well. Um, but it, it was a sort of space of uncertainty because I, I wasn't sure that I'm doing what I should because I was missing guidelines for exploratory research. So as I said, we often hear, well, you, have to, you, you make your hypothesis, but you can explore all you can. But how you explore all you can, it sounds like the sort of wild search through the entire space of possibilities. Um, I think there's space for, for building in some suggestions on how to do this. And I came up with some wiggle room for myself uh, that made me feel fairly comfortable in how I approach my data. So I'm just going to share what, what I did um, or how this process of data searching, what it looked like. Um, so the one guideline that you do hear about with exploratory uh, approaches is to collect, to correct for multiple comparisons. Uh, so if you do many statistical tests, some of them will be spuriously significant and you want to set your threshold for, uh, for significance to take that into account. Um, actually, we think about this slightly differently in neuroscience. So neuroscience, as a rule, we're testing uh, a large amount of data uh, there are many locations in the brain that we're testing. There are many points across time where we're testing. And if we do a test and find an effect, and we do another test in an adjacent time point or location, find an effect, and another adjacent time point and find an effect, we think this is more reliable rather than less reliable because these uh, time points and places in time are clustering together. So we're using the inter interdependence, the knowledge that these hypotheses about test here, here, and here are independent across time or space to guide, to guide our level of certainty about whether there is something or not. It's a completely different situation if this location in the brain lights up and this location lights up to, to, to the situation where there are several adjacent locations. Um, so I decided simply to not think about this too much. Um, and, and to, to just run these tests and see what comes out as, as constant, uh, regardless of, of what, I'm, what I'm tinkering with. Um, another thing that might sound a bit silly if you're not in neuroscience is that I decided to plot the data. Why do I say that it might sound silly? Because if you look at neuroimaging papers, they're full of plots. But these plots often represent a highly condensed piece of information about the data. So if you look at a classical MRI image uh, and you see there's something here and something here, 
These blobs you see are not uh, markers of anything physiological. They are an F-test or a T-test or a model test or a statistic. Um, and if you look at an EEG trace, it's an average across many people. So you're just seeing the average. And this, I find, is not enough for me to understand what's going on with my data. So I'm going to show you data from uh, the so-called Anscombe's Quartet. This is from a, an old statistical paper. Um, this is a hypothesized correlation between two variables that are called x and, x and y. And there is a scatter plot, and you can pull a regression line through it, and you can calculate the correlation coefficient, and you can calculate the p-value, uh, so to say if, well, how different one is from the other. And if you take this t-value, you can just place it somewhere here, and, and, and that is what you're representing in an MRI slide. Um, the problem is that you can get the same t-value and the same correlation with these sets of data as well. And so, so these sets of data have an x and y variable that has an identical mean, an identical variance, identical regression line, identical correlation, identical t-test. But obviously, they tell a very different story. So I started uncollapsing data where I could and uh, looking at it and trying to just describe what I see rather than going for these very condensed, um, condensed plots that we usually use. And here's just a quick example. So this is again two tones, one is played here, one is played here, and uh, these are two conditions, these are just the averages, but I also uncollapsed here, so this is an important moment in data processing. I looked for every person in every condition. Um, where the peak is and what the amplitude is, and this is a point where something's statistically significant, and I was fairly happy that it looked like this set over here, so it's sort of not, there's nothing surprising going on, so I could sort of rely on this, on this finding that, that it sort of tells me what I think it tells me when I look at the averages. Another thing is describing the data. Now, this morning, Marcus said that we're not novelists. We're not here to tell a story. We're here to describe the data. And there is a lot of agreement with that. I would like to argue that we're really bad at describing the data, that uh, research papers are really hard to read. And partly this is because the results sections are described in terms of the way we label our variables, the way we test statistics. So you might hear that you might read the statement or we're trained to state things like we found a main effect of gender, where in fact, when you unpack it to how you think about it, what you're trying to say actually is we found that men were taller than women. And you could say the other thing, you don't. And then you jump straight to a discussion section where there's some speculation on what it all means. But I find that um, just stopping and slowly unpacking this into a form that's more and more and more readable is very useful for me. And it's especially difficult, it's incredibly difficult when results are messy and when I'm coming up against null results. Um, and I just take the time to describe what I see and I take the time uh, to say, uh, instead of there was no significance in this factor, just to, to tell myself, well, this doesn't mean there's evidence that there's no difference in an effect. It just means that I did not find evidence for a difference. Um, so describing this is part of what I try to do a lot. And I try to, now that I'm mentoring people as well, I try to make them do this and spend a lot of time on it. 
Another thing is to try to learn as much as possible from null results. So one approach was what EJ was telling to use, apply different statistics and try to give evidence for the null. Um, in the absence of this, um, I would just like if, if you are PIs to ask you to um, spend at least as much time with your students that come with null results as with your students that come with exciting results. Um, we are in the process of learning how to do research here and a, a very large number of researchers um, are actually graduate students and it makes sense to spend time on null results simply to see what can be learned from it. Again, simply from pl by plotting everything and describing and seeing if it really looks like there's no effect or it looks like maybe the data are distributed differently in the two conditions and so on. So, so something can be gleaned from it and spend time on it. Um, and this last, last suggestion to um, strive to make hypotheses before you collect your data and the fact that it's um, it's put uh, in contrast with the situation we are widely exploring. Uh, I, I would like to point out that a hypothesis is an educated guess, and the amount of education you have influences how good a guess you can make. And usually there's at least two people involved in this process. One is a PI who already made the hypothesis and wrote them down in the grant proposal. The other is a student that the PI probably doesn't want to spoon feed everything to and wants them to come to their own conclusions. Um, but a lot of people, again, are, are learning by doing, and I found that I'm not comfortable in wildly exploring the data if I don't have a hypothesis. I'm comfortable with plotting some of the data and then stopping and then thinking what I can hypothesize based on what I see, then doing another set of analysis and so on. So sometimes I come across a situation where I see one type of neural activity happening and then I say, okay, literature says if this type of neural activity ha is happening, then another type of neural activity should be happening as well. So that's my new hypothesis and so on. So it's a sort of multi-step process. It's, it's, we can at some point get to a point where we have a, a clear hypothesis at the outset, but, but it's a process. And well, how does it feel right now? It feels kind of like this. Um, so I think I, I kind of find my way out of this tangle, but I'm still unsure. I, I would like to have more discussion about how to approach data exploration, how to approach reproducibility in this narrow sense of, uh, of two people looking at the same data coming to the same conclusions. Thanks. Thank